Good morning. Um, hope you're ready for U.S. President number seven, Andrew Jackson, part two. Reforms, rotation of offices, and spoil system. In an effort to purge the government of corruption, Jackson launched pre presidential investigations into all executive cabinet offices and departments. He believed appointees should be hired on merit and with withdrew many candidates he believed were lax in the handling of monies. He believed that the federal government had been corrupted and that he had received a mandate from the American people to purge such corruption. Jackson's investigations uncovered enormous fraud in the federal government and numerous officials were removed from office and indicted on corruption. In the first year of Jackson's presidency, his, his investigations covered 280000 stolen from the Treasury, and the Department of the Navy was saved $1 million. He asked Congress to reform embezzlement laws, reduce fraudulent applications for federal pensions, pass revenue laws to evasion of custom duties, and pass laws to improve government accounting. Jackson's postmaster general Barry resigned after a congressional investigation into the Postal Service revealed mismanagement of mail services, collusion of favoritism in awarding lucrative contracts, as well as failure to audit accounts and supervised contract performances. Jackson replaced Barry with Treasury Auditor, Auditor and prominent Kitchen Cabinet member Amos Kendall. <coughs> Sorry about that who went on to implement much-needed reforms in the post office department. Jackson repeatedly called for the abolition of Electoral College by constitutional amendment in his annual messages to Congress. As president, in his third annual message to Congress, he expressed the view, I have heretofore recommended amendments of the federal constitution, giving the election of president and vice president to the people, and limiting the service of the former to a single term. So important do I consider these changes in our fundamental law that I cannot, in accordance with my sense of duty, omit to press them upon the consideration of a new Congress. Although he was unable to implement these goals, Jackson's time in office did see a variety of other reforms. He supported an act in July 1836 that enabled widows of Revolutionary War soldiers who met certain criteria to receive their husband's pensions. In 1836, Jackson established a 10-hour day in national shipyards. Jackson enforced a Tenure of Office Act signed by President Monroe in 1820 that limited appointed office tenure and authorized the president to remove and appoint political party associates. Jackson believed that a rotation in office was a democratic reform preventing hereditary office holding and made civil service responsible to the popular will. Jackson declared that rotation of appointments in political office was a leading principle in the Republican creed. Jackson noted in, in a country where no offices are created solely for the benefit of the people, no one man has any more intricate right to official station than another. Jackson believed that rotating political appointments would prevent the development of a corrupt bureaucracy the number of federal office holders removed by Jackson were exaggerated by his opponents. 
Jackson rotated only about 20% of federal office holders during his first term, some for dereliction of, of duty rather than political purposes. Jackson nonetheless used his presidential power to award loyal Democrats by granting them federal office appointments. Jackson's approach incorporated patriotism for a country as qualification for holding office, having appointed a soldier who had lost his leg fighting on the battlefield to postmaster. Jackson stated, if he lost his leg, fight for his country, that is enough for me. Jackson's theory regarding rotation of office generated what would later he be called the spoil system. The political realities of, Jackson, of Washington sometimes forced Jackson to make partisan appointments despite his personal reservations. Supervision of bureaus and departments of whose operations were outside of Washington, such as the New York Customs House, the Postal Service, the Departments of Navy and War, and the bureaus of Indian Affairs, whose budget had increased enormously in the previous two decades. Proved to be difficult, Remini invites that because friendship, politics, and geography constituted the president's total criteria for appointments, most of his appointments were predictably substandard. Petty Court Affair Jackson devoted a considerable amount of his presidential time during his early years in office responding to what came to be known as the Petticoat Affair or Eaton Affair. Washington gossip circulated among Jackson's cabinet members and their wives, including Calhoun's wife, Floride Calhoun, concerning Secretary of War Eaton and his wife, Peggy Eaton. Salacious rumors held that Peggy, as a barmaid, in her father's tavern had been sexually promiscuous or had been, or, or had even been a prostitute. Controversy also sued because Peggy had married soon after her previous husband's death. It was alleged that she and her husband had engaged in an adulterous affair while her previous husband was still living. Petticoat politics emerged when the wives of camp members led by Mrs. Calhoun refused to socialize with the Eatons. Allowing a prostitute in the official family was unthinkable, but Jackson refused to believe the rumors, telling his cabinet that she is as chaste as a virgin. Jackson believed that the dishonorable people were the rumor gongers, who in essence questioned and dishonored Jackson himself by an attempt to drive the Eatons out, daring to tell him who he could and could not have it as a cabinet. Jackson was also reminded of the attacks that were made against his wife, these memories increased his dedication to defending Peggy Eaton. Meanwhile, the cabinet wives insisted that the interests and honor of all American women were at stake. They believed the responsible wife should never accord a man's sexual favors without the assurance that went with marriage. A woman who broke that code was dishonorable and unacceptable. Historian Daniel Walker Howe notes that this was a feminist spirit that... that in the next decade shaped the women's rights movement. Secretary of State Martin Van Buren, a widower, was already forming a coalition against Calhoun. He could now see his main chance to strike hard. He took the side of Jackson and Eaton. In the spring of 1831, Jackson, at Van Buren's suggestion, demanded the resignations of all captains except Barry, Van Buren himself resigned to avoid the appearance of bias. In 1832, Jackson nominated Von, 
Van Buren to be ministered to Great Britain. Calhoun blocked the nomination with a tiebreaker vote against it, claiming the defeat, defeated nomination would kill Van Buren. Sir, kill dead. He will never kick. Never, sir, never kick. Van Buren continued to serve as an important advisor to Jackson. He was placed on a ticket for vice president in the 1832 election, making him Jackson's heir apparent. The petticoat affair led to the development of the kitchen cabinet. The kitchen cabinet emerged as an Kitchen and Cabinet emerged as an unofficial group of advisors to the president. His existence was partially rooted in Jackson's ability with his official cabinet even after purging. Indian Removal Policy Jackson's Indian Removal Act and subsequent treaties resulted in a, in the forced removal of several Indian tribes from their territory, traditional territorial traditional territories including the Trail of Fears. Throughout his eight years in office, Jackson made about 70 treaties with Native American tribes, both in the South and in the Northwest. Jackson's presidency marked a new era in Indian-Anglo-American relations, initiating a policy of Indian removal. Jackson himself sometimes participated in the treaty negotiating process with various Indian tribes, though other times he left the negotiations to his subordinates. Southern tribes included the Choctaw Creek, Chickasaw, Seminole, and the Cherokee. The Northwest tribes include the Chippewa, Ottawa, and the Potawatomi. Relations between Indians and Americans increasingly grew tense and sometimes violent as a result of territorial conflicts. Previous presidents had at times supported removal or attempts to civilize the Indians, but generally let the problem play itself out with minimal intervention. There had developed a growing popular and political movement to deal with the issue and out of this policy to relocate certain Indian populations. Jackson, never known for timidity, became an advocate for this relocation policy in what many historians consider the most controversial aspect of his presidency. In his first annual message to Congress, Jackson advocated, advocated land west of the Mississippi River to be set aside for Indian tribes. On May 6, 1830, Congress passed the Indian Removal Act, which Jackson signed into law two days later. The act authorized the president to negotiate treaties to buy tribal lands in the east in exchange for lands farther west outside of existing state borders. The act specifically pertained to the five civilized tribes. Tribes in the south, the conditions being that they could either move west or stay and obey the state law, effectively relinquishing their sovereignty. Jackson, Eaton, and General Coffee negotiated with the Chickasaw, Chickasaw, who quickly agreed to move Jackson to move. Jackson put Eaton and Coffee in charge of negotiating with the Choctaw. Lacking Jackson's skills at negotiation, they frequently bribed the chiefs in order to gain their submission. The tactics worked, and the chiefs agreed to move. The removal of the Choctaw took place in the winter of 1831 and 1832 and was wrought with misery and suffering. The Seminole, despite the signing of the Treaty of Payne's Landing in 1832, refused to move. In December 1835, <coughs> this dispute began the Second Seminole War. The war lasted over six years, finally ending in, 18, finally ending in 1842. Members of the Creek Nation had signed the Treaty of Cassette in 1832, allowing the Creek to either sell or retain their land. Conflict later erupted between the Creek, Remain, and the white settlers leading to a second Creek War. A common complaint amongst the tribes was that the men 
who had signed the treaties did not represent the whole tribe. The state of Georgia became involved in the contentious dispute with the Cherokee, culminated in the 1832 Supreme Court decision in Worcester versus Georgia. Chief Justice John Marshall, writing for the court, ruled that Georgia could not forbid whites from entering tribal lands as it had attempted to do with two missionaries supposedly stirring up resistance amongst the tribe's people. Jackson is frequently attributed the following response. John Marshall has made his decision, not let him enforce it. The quote uh, apparently indicated Jackson's dismissive view of the courts was attributed to Jackson by Horace Greeley, who cited as a source for Representative George M. Bricks. Remini argues that Jackson did not say it because, while it certainly sounds like Jackson, there was nothing for him to enforce. This is because a writ of habeas corpus had never been issued for the missionaries. The court also did not ask federal marshals to carry out the decision as had become standard. A group of Cherokees led by John Ridge negotiated a treaty of New Echota. Ridge was not a widely recognized leader of the Cherokee, and this document was rejected by some as illegitimate. Another faction led by John Ross unsuccessfully petitioned to protest the proposed removal. The Cherokee largely considered themselves independent and not subject to the laws of the United States or Georgia. The treaty was enforced by Jackson's successor, Van Buren. Subsequently, as many as 4,000 out of 18,000 Cherokee died on the Trail of Tears in 1838. More than 45,000 American Indians were relocated to the West during Jackson's administration. <coughs> Though a few Cherokees walked back afterwards or migrated to the high Smoky Mountains. The Black Hawk War took place during Jackson's presidency in 1832 after a group of Indians crossed into U.S. territory. Nullification Crisis In 1828, Congress had approved the Tariff of Abominations, which set the tariff at a historically high rate. Southern planters who sold their cotton on the world market strongly opposed this tariff, which they saw as favoring northern interests. The South now had to pay more for goods it did not produce locally, and other countries would have more difficulty affording southern cotton. The issue came to a head during Jackson's presidency, resulting in the nullification crisis in which South Carolina threatened disunion. The South Carolina Exposition had protests and protests of 1828 secretly written but Calhoun asserted that their state had the right to nullify and declare void the tariff legislation of 1828. Although Jackson sympathized with the South in the tariff debate, he also vigorously supported a strong union with effective powers for the central government. Jackson attempted to face down Calhoun over the issue, which developed into a bitter rivalry between the two men. One incident came at the April, 8, April 13, 1830, just a day dinner involving after-dinner toast, Robert Hayne began to began by toasting to the Union of the United States and the sovereignty of the states. Jackson then rose and in a booming voice added, Our federal union, it must be preserved, a clear challenge to Calhoun. Calhoun clarified his position by responding, The union next to our liberty, the most dear. In May 1830, Jackson discovered that Calhoun had asked President Monroe to censure Jackson for his invasion of Spanish Florida. In 1818, Malcahoon was serving as Secretary of War. 
Calhoun and Jackson's relationship deteriorated further. By February 1831, the break between Calhoun and Jackson was final. Responding to inaccurate press reports about the feud, Calhoun had published letters between him and Jackson dealing, detailing the conflict in the United States Telegraph. Jackson and Calhoun began an angry correspondence, which lasted until Jackson stopped in stopped it in July. The Telegraph, edited by Duff Green, initially supported Jackson after it sided with Calhoun and nullification. Jackson needed a new organ for the administration. He enlisted the help of longtime supporter Francis Preston Blair, who in November 1830 established a newspaper known as the Washington Globe, which from then on served as a primary mouthpiece of the Democratic Party. Jackson supported a revision to tariff race known as the Tariff of 1832. It was designed to placate the nullifiers by lowering tariff rates written by Treasury Secretary Louis McLean. The hit bill lowered duties from 45% to 27% in May. Representative John Quincy Adams introduced a slightly revised version of the bill, which Jackson accepted. It passed Congress on July 9th and was signed by the President on July 14th. The bill failed to satisfy extremists on either side. On November 24th, the South Carolina legislature nullified both the Tariff of 1832 and the Tariff of 1828. In response, Jackson sent U.S. Navy warships to Charleston Harbor and threatened to hang any man who worked to support nullification or secession. On December 28, 1832, Calhoun resigned as vice president after having been elected to the U.S. Senate. This was part of a strategy whereby Calhoun was less than three months remaining on his presidential term, would replace Robert Y. Hayne in the Senate, and he would then become governor of South Carolina. Hayne had often struggled to defend nullification on the floor of the Senate, especially against fierce criticism from Senator Daniel Webster of Massachusetts. Also that December, Jackson issued a resounding proclamation against a nullifier, stating that he considered the power to annul a law of the United States assumed by one state incompatible with the existence of the Union contracted expressly by the letter of the Constitution, unauthorized by its spirit, inconsistent with every principle on which it was founded, and destructive of the great aspect, object for which it was formed. South Carolina, the President declared soon, stood on the brink of insurrection and treason, and he appealed to the people of the state to reassert their allegiance to that union for which their ancestors had fought. Jackson also denied the right of secession. The Constitution formed a government, not a league, to say that any state may at pleasure secede from the union is to say that the United States are not a nation. Jackson tended to personalize the controversy, frequently characterized nullification as a conspiracy between disappointed and bitter men whose ambition had been thwarted. Jackson asked Congress to pass a force bill explicitly authorizing the use of military force to enforce the tariff. It was introduced by Senator Felix Grundy of Tennessee and was quickly attacked by Calhoun as military depotism. At the same time, Calhoun and Clay began to work on a new compromise tariff. A bill sponsored by the administration had been introduced by Representative Julian C. Verplank of New York, but it lowered rates more sharply than Clay and other protections desired. Clay managed to get Calhoun to agree to a bill with 
higher raise in exchange for Clay's opposition to Jackson's military threats and perhaps with the hope that he could win some Southern votes in his next bid for the presidency. The Compromise Tariffs passed on March 1, 1833. The Force Bill passed the same day. Calhoun, Clay, and several other marched out of the chamber in opposition, the only dissenting vote coming from John Tyler of Virginia. The new tariff was opposed by Webster, who argued that it essentially surrendered to South Carolina's demands. Jackson, despite his anger over the scrapping of the Verplank Bill and the new alliance between Clay and Calhoun, saw it as an efficient way to end the crisis. He signed both bills on March 2nd, stating with the force bill, the South Carolina Convention then met and rescinded its nullification ordinance, but its final show of defiance nullified the force bill on May 1st. Jackson wrote, the tariff was only the pretext on disunion and Southern Confederacy. The real object, the next pretext would be the, the, the Negro or slavery question. Foreign Affairs, William C. Reeves, Jackson's minister to France, successfully negotiated a reparations treaty with France in 1831, addressing the subject of foreign affairs in his first annual Congress address to Congress. Jackson declared it to be his settled purpose to ask nothing that is not clearly right and to submit to nothing that is wrong. When Jackson took office, spoliation claims or compensation demands for the capture of American ships and sales dating from the Napoleonic era caused strained relations between the U.S. and the French governments. The French Navy had captured and sent American ships to Spanish ports while holding their crews captive, forcing them to labor without any charges or judicial rules. According to Secretary of State Martin Van Buren, relations between the U.S. and France were hopeless. Jackson's minister to France, William C. Reeves, through diplomacy, were able to convince the French government to sign a reparations treaty on July 4, 1831, that would award the U.S. $25 million $5 million in damage. The French government became delinquent in payment due to internal financial and political difficulties. The French King Louis Philippe I and his ministers blamed the French Chamber of Deputies. By 1834, the non-payment of reparations by the French government drew Jackson's ire, and he became impatient. In his December 1834 State of the Union Address, Jackson sternly reprimanded the French government for non-payment, stating the federal government was wholly disappointed by the French and demanded Congress authorize trade reprisals against France. Feeling insulted by Jackson's words, the French people began pressuring the government not to pay the indemnity until Jackson had apologized for his remarks. In his December 1835 State of the Union address, Jackson refused to apologize, stating he had good opinion of the French people and his intentions were peaceful. Jackson described in lengthy and minute detail the history of events surrounding the treaty and his belief the French government was purposely stalling payment. The French accepted Jackson's statements as sincere and in the February 1836 reparations were paid. In addition to France, the Jackson administration successfully settled spoliation claims with Denmark, Portugal, and Spain. <coughs> Jackson's State Department was active and successful at making trade agreements with Russia, Spain, Turkey, Great Britain, and Siam. Under the, the Treaty of Great Britain, American trade was reopened in the West Indies. The trade agreement was 
with Siam, was America's first treaty between the United States and an Asiatic country. As a result, American exports increased 75%, while imports increased 250%. Jackson's attempt to purchase Texas from Mexico from 5000 for $5,000 failed. The Charge Day Affairs in Mexico, Colonel Anthony Butler suggested that the U.S. take Texas over militarily, but Jackson refused. Butler was later replaced toward the end of Jackson's presidency. In 1835, the Texas Revolution began when pro-slavery American settlers in Texas fought the Mexican government for Texas independence. By May 1836, they had routed the Mexican military, established an independent Republic of Texas. The new Texas government legalized slavery and demanded recognition of President Jackson and annexation into the United States. Jackson was hesitant in recognizing Texas, unconvinced that the new republic could maintain independence from Mexico, and not wanted to make Texas an anti-slavery issue during the 1836 election. The strategy worked, the Democratic Party and national loyalties were held intact, and Van Buren was elected president. Jackson formally recognized the Republic of Texas, nominated L.C. Louis LeBranch as Charge de, Charge de Affairs, on the last day, full day of his presidency, March 3, 1837, Jackson failed in his attempts to reopen, to open trade with China and Japan, and was unsettled Great America's presence and power in South America. Bank vetoed an election of 32. The 1832 presidential election demonstrated the rapid development and organization of political parties. During this time, there were Democratic parties that first national convention held in Baltimore nominated Jackson's voice for Vice President Van Buren of the National Republican Party, who had held their first convention in Baltimore earlier in December 1831, nominated Henry Clay, now a senator from Kentucky, and John Sargent of Pennsylvania. The anti-Masonic party <coughs> emerged by capitalizing on <coughs> opposition to Freemasonry, which existed primarily in New England after the disappearance and possible murder of William Morgan, the party which had earlier held its convention also in Baltimore in September 1831, nominated William Wirt of Maryland and Amos L. Maker of Pennsylvania. Clay was like Jackson a Mason, and so some anti-Jacksonians would have supported the National Republican Party, supported Wirt instead. In 1816, the Second Bank of the United States was chartered by President James Madison to restore the United States economy, devastated by the War of 1812. Renault had appointed Nicholas Biddle. As a bank's executive, Jackson believed that the bank was a fundamentally corrupt monopoly. <coughs> its stock was mostly held by foreigners. He insisted and exerted an unfair amount of control over the political system. Jackson used the issue to promote his democratic values, believing the bank was being run exclusively for the wealthy. Jackson stated the bank made the richer richer, the rich richer, and the po and the potent more powerful. He accused it of making loans with the if intended influencing elections. In an address to Congress in 1830, Jackson called for a substitute for the bank that would have no private stockholders and no ability to lend or purchase land in its its only power would be to issue bills of exchange. The address touched off fiery debate in the Senate. Thomas Hart Benton, now a strong supporter of the president despite the brawl years earlier, gave a speech excoriating the bank and calling for a debate on its recharter. Webster led a motion to narrowly defeat the resolution. Shortly afterward, the Globe announced that Jackson would stand for re-election. Despite his misgivings about the bank, Jackson supported a plan proposed in late 
1831 by its Pro Bank Treasury Secretary Louis McLean, who was secretly working with Biddle to recharter a foreign version of the bank in a way that would free up funds which would, in turn, be used to strengthen the military or pay off the nation's debt. This would be done in part through the sale of government stock in the bank <coughs> over the objections of Attorney General Robert B. Taney and inter in irreconcilable opponent of the bank, he allowed McLean to publish a treasury report in which he essentially recommended rechartering the bank. Clay hoped to make the bank an issue in the, in the election so as to accuse Jackson of going beyond his powers if he voted a recharter bill. He and Webster urged Biddle to immediately apply for recharter rather than wait to reach a compromise with the administration. Biddle received advice to the contrary from Moderate Democrats such as McLean and William Lewis, who argued that Biddle should wait because Jackson would likely veto the recharter bill. On January 6, 1832, Biddle submitted to Congress a renewal of the bank's charter without any of the proposed reforms. The submission came for four years before the or original 20-year charter was to end. Biddle's recharter bill passed the Senate on June 11th and the House on July 3rd, 1832. Jackson determined to veto it, but, but Moderate Democrats, including McLean, were appalled by the perceived arrogance of the bill and supported his decision. When Van Buren met Jackson on July 4th, Jackson declared, The bank, Mr. Van Buren, is trying to kill me, but I will kill it. Jackson vetoed the bill on July 10th. The veto message was crafted primarily by Taney, Kendall, and Jackson's nephew and advisor, Andrew Jackson Donaldson. It attacked the bank as an agent of inequality that supported only the wealthy. The veto was considered one of the strongest and the most controversial present statements and a brilliant political manifesto. The National Republican Party immediately made Jackson's veto of the bank a political issue. Jackson's political opponents castigated the veto as the very slag of the leveler and demagogue claiming Jackson was using class warfare to gain support from the common man. Stay tuned for part four. Uh, in a few minutes. Thank you.